Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Gavin Ralston and Philippe Lespinard. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Gavin Ralston. So welcome from me to this week's call and podcast. We're covering the week to today, Tuesday, 23rd of October. And I'm very pleased to have with me Philippe Lespinard, co-head of Fixed Income. To judge from market movements, last week was a bit calmer than the previous week. Uh, the S&P 500 was flat and equities in Europe and Asia recovered slightly. Bond yields were also stable at the higher levels reached earlier in October. But since Monday, uh, selling of equities has resumed with a vengeance. At a macro level, most of the new action over the week came in China and in Italy. Chinese equities reached a low for the year on Thursday, uh, have now fallen 20% since the 1st of January. Then on Friday, China reported its weakest quarter for growth since 2008. This was followed by a healthy dose of talking up the market and stimulus measures, in particular a cut to personal income taxes, and this again led to a sharp rebound in Chinese equities on Monday. Italy is not backing down from its tough stance with the European Commission. Uh, they are arguing their spending expansion is necessary, although are making more emollient noises about longer-term plans for increasing the deficit. Italian yields are about 3.4%, a spread of around about 3% over their German equivalent, but have been as high as 38 Then, finally, in stock news, uh, U.S. companies continue to report their third-quarter earnings, which are on average slightly ahead of expectations, and on the numbers reported so far, up 19% on the third quarter of 2017, energy being by far the strongest sector. The other event of last week was the escalation of the affair of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, leading to heightened tension between Saudi Arabia and the rest of the world with potential implications for oil prices. But Philippe, turning to you, um, maybe I can just ask, since you were last on the call uh, three or four weeks ago, what's changed in terms of the positioning of fixed income portfolios? Uh, well, not so, not so much has changed, to be fair. We're still underweight rates. Um, if anything, we have a bit less emerging market risk in the portfolios. Um, and um, the position that we had on Italy, which is a defensive position, we've taken out. So we, we're not getting involved uh, in Italy at this stage, although it's quite tempting to do that. Um, and is, is there a level of spread at which you'd come back, or is it dependent on market circumstances? Yeah, well, first of all, we would we probably our preferred place to get involved is the two to three year part of the Kyoto curve, not the ten year part. Um, and the ten year part heavily, uh, you know, involved in speculations, a big big futures contract that moves around a lot, and sometimes on very little volume. Uh, Short term rates a little bit easier to apprehend because when you get to two and a half to three percent, you have such a nice carry and roll down um, that uh, you know, particularly against short dated uh, bonds that. Um, it is a very tempting part of the yield curve to get involved to, and it's probably less, you know, less open to, to, to speculation and volatility. Mm. One of the things that we were talking about before the call was the, the, the fact that although this is a risk-off environment in the sense that equities have been uh, pretty weak this month, it's not a classic risk-off scenario in that bonds are not rising in, at the same time as equities are falling. What, what, what does that tell you about the way the markets are thinking? 
Well, it tells us a couple of things. Firstly, um, it is very popular to be short uh, bonds or short treasuries. Uh, they're very, very heavily subscribed position as well. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but but certainly it means that it's uh, you know it's difficult for there's still a lot of people who who um, who are thinking that yields are going higher. Uh, that's a very consensus view. Um, the other thing is also we also know is the reaction function of the central banks and particularly the Fed is not uh, the same as it was before. Um, in the past, uh, under Mrs. Yellen's tenure, say, uh, if stocks had been falling by 5%, uh, they, would made very, they would have made very um, uh, reassuring noises that uh, they, they would, you know, they'd stand ready to intervene or, or help out or whatever it is, prevent the economy from slowing or all those sorts of things. Um, because, of course, central bankers were very worried about deflation, the downside, and everything else, and had been so for many years. And now the Fed is not worried about the downside. If anything, they've been telling us how well the economy is doing. Um, they are clearly quite reinforced in their conviction that rates need to continue to normalize and go up. Um, and, um, and the other thing, of course, that we're forgetting uh, is that the technicals for treasuries are much less favorable than they were. Um, the Federal Reserve is... the level of issuance. Yes, yeah, so they're shrinking their balance sheet, first of all, so they're not replacing the treasury stock that is rolling off. Um, level of issuance is going up uh, markedly. And also the other factor, which is the hedging cost uh, for foreigners uh, investing, either Europeans or, say, Japanese investors who are the main buyers of, of U.S. assets, uh, the hedging costs are yeah. so high that it well, takes let's, that... Let's come back to that in a moment, but just sure. focusing on, on 10-year yields, which for the time being seems to have settled at about... Or 3.15 today. What, what what would cause a significant rise from that level in your mind? What what would have to happen to disturb the consensus at the moment? Um, to make it to make it go higher uh, substantially. Mm. Um, well, I think there's a couple of things you you might need to see. One is uh, is a continuation of wages going up because in the end, uh, monetary policy walls very much about wages uh, and and getting some some purchasing power in the hands of consumers. Um, but also, uh, in, uh, as a lot of people have seen this, this whole very elaborate conversation around R-star, and R-star, you know, for specialists, is the equilibrium level of interest rates that the Fed thinks is neutral for the economy. Mm -hmm. And R-star has been described um, as being, you know, between two and seven-eighths, which is roughly is their current estimate now. Um, uh, and it has a range around it, but it's been described as probably too low now, and it, it has been coming down. I mean, the first the first estimates had been at around four and a half, so it's been coming down. You know, for the for the last few years, they've, they've brought down their level of of the uh, the neutral rate. If they were to come around and say, well, you know what, we thought about this, maybe the neutral rate is more like three and a half percent, then I think definitely uh, treasuries will then have a next leg of the sell-off. Um, because it means that they won't stop at three and a quarter or three and a half. They, they'll have to keep going, um, or at least for the market will anticipate that to be the case. So that's that's really the, the trigger to, to the next level of their market, yeah. really. But it's worth bearing in mind that Keith's view is that growth weakens a bit in 2019 and possibly quite a lot in 2020. Yes, and, and Keith's view um, is, is very much based on the idea that uh, mm. the fiscal stimulus that is currently being being given the U.S. economy comes to an end. Um, a lot of these measures are temporary in nature, and they come to an end, and at some point uh, that, that sugar rush, if you will, um, mm -hmm. eases, and you know, the investment you've made, you've brought forward, doesn't happen anymore, and therefore you get, get to a situation where you, where you, you slow down. Now, um, 
you know, the White House already making noises about a tax cut, income tax cut. So there's clearly some willingness to carry on uh, the, the sugar rush, but this time favoring consumers, not so much companies. Um, and that could be another leg. The other thing is, you know, even with a mild slowdown, I'm not sure we're talking about recession here, but even with mild slowdown, uh, resources are very tight in America, you know, whether it's labor, yeah. uh, capacity, industrial capacity, uh, transportation. I mean, there's a huge amount of, of you know, stimulus, um, which is going to last and generate a lot of demand for, continued demand for labor and resources. Um, so I think it's a, um, I think it's a bit of a, you know, the Fed clearly doesn't think there's a recession coming. They've told us that. Yeah. Um, the credit yeah. markets certainly don't feel that either. Mm. So it's a, I'm not saying we disagree with the forecast, but it's certainly not the consensus forecast, that's for sure. So let's come back to the point about the cost for foreign investors of hedging U.S. dollar exposure. This is a function of the, the rise in cash rates in the U.S. LIBOR. Three-month LIBOR is now up 2.5%. But it's now got to the point where actually the yield on hedged U.S. dollar exposure for a yen or euro-based investor is lower than the local yield in euros or yen. Yes, if you um, so obviously the, the, the rate differential matters um, when you, when you come to this time of the year where your three months the typical hedging horizon is three months forward the, the three months forwards that are currently being taken on go past the year end which is when the banks have to tot up their balance sheet um, and, and reckon what what uh, what capital they'll need um, and that's already uh, leading to banks adding a penalty. To that, to, that, mm-hmm. to that differential interest rates because there's essentially a capital charge for people who need to hedge. So if you add this, um, as you say, currently it makes the U.S. yield curve uh, much flatter for foreigners than their own yield curve, um, certainly for Europeans. Um, and so for European, it's 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 arguably strange that buying a bond at 40 or 60 basis points uh, with financing that as a rate of minus 0.4 actually gives you 1% of uh, rate differential, whereas the, yield, the U.S. yield curve is actually less steep than that. And therefore, when you translate or you asset swap uh, those bonds into uh, into uh, dollar bonds into euro, uh, you lose the advantage. So there's another reason to be cautious about the supply-demand balance for Yes, and, and we also know from our Japanese clients, and, and we've got quite a few uh, who have who are hedging back into yen, that even that penalty to hedge back into yen is now su- sufficiently high that it gives them it's, it's very painful mm. for them. So the two big buyers of U.S. assets, and which had been the Europeans and the Japanese, uh, are now much less um, you know, in, uh, incentivized, if you will, mm. and they're getting in some cases negative yields uh, brought back into their own currency, which doesn't make any sense for them. Um, so. You've got less sponsorship for foreigners, the Federal Reserve uh, shrinking their balance sheet now, and of course, um, uh, the deficit ballooning um, by a trillion over the next couple of years. So, um, and all of that's going to end into more, more issuance, which is a, you know, a, big, a big effect on, on yield, U.S. yields going up. So let, let's move away from <coughs> treasuries for a moment and talk about one of the big disparities in returns this year, which has been between U.S. high yield and emerging markets debt, at least dollar emerging markets debt. Well, high yield is up a couple of percent, EM debt is down five or six percent. Is that gap going to close now? Well, we, we think so, um, and probably from both ends. I mean, the, the, uh, the negativity on emerging markets is probably overdone. Um, you know, the, the global cycle, in our view, is reasonably healthy, um, and clearly there are some countries which got, got themselves into trouble and had the wrong policy set up, but as a whole, Emerging market corporates, 
we talk about we could talk about companies who, in some cases, are world leaders, just happen to be headquartered in a country labelled emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, and at equivalent credit ratings, they are quite they're performing quite well in terms of revenues and so on. So um, that gap might close because we think that emerging market corporates have got cheap, but also U.S. high yield is, is probably the last asset class that hasn't registered um, uh, you know the. Uh, the increase in volatility, uh, the higher short-term yields, um, uh, the trade wars, and all the worries that you've had reflected everywhere else, um, uh, even in investment grade. Um, the U.S. high yield is the one sector that has basically decided uh, that that nothing nothing could possibly go wrong, and that's a little bit that so that makes us quite defensive. And mm-hmm. our credit teams have been shifting away from U.S. high yield and towards uh, emerging and towards uh, European high yield even. Right. Okay. So let's talk about China, um, which is obviously something that's preoccupying the markets at the moment. I guess the Chinese authorities have the choice between maintaining the currency where it is at around about seven against the US dollar on the one hand and stimulating the economy on the other. Where do you think, how do you think that plays out? Well, they've clearly made it, uh, they've made their choice clear. Um, they would like to stimulate the economy, um, and uh, more than just generally the economy, they want to stimulate domestic demand. So um, it's going to be mostly fiscal policy. They've already announced this. They're going to be cutting taxes, um, which, which actually the, the tax cut that they're envisaging is a, is a big one because it affects a lot of people at the lower end of the, uh, the income scale. So it's a very, very potent force for consumption. Um, they've also uh, eased uh, the the credit, uh, the banking credit um, landscape by just giving, giving authorizing banks to to issue more for the same capital that they that they currently have. So they're clearly preoccupied by by stimulating domestic demand. Meanwhile, um, uh, clearly uh, foreign demand and exports are uh, contributing. I mean, they're still very high. They run a huge trade. Surplus, but it's uh, it's not growing as it, as it used to, and it's now actually a negative contribution to their growth rate um, uh, from a very high uh, very high um, level. So it looks like they have so many uncertainties uh, in their policy mix uh, between what uh, what the Americans will do to them um, uh, that they are choosing to stabilize the currency. They don't want that additional source of volatility which would come through the currency. They also have a huge amount of reserves, so if they chose to stand in front of uh, the magic seven uh, you know, uh, yuan per dollar uh, parity, um, they can do this for a long, long time. Um, now, they also said they would use all of their reserves, clearly, they won't, but they're, they're, willing, they, they're willing to stand there for a while. Um, now, it should be noted that the, the short ran, you know, or short renminbi long dollar is one of the most popular trades. Um, mm. That you can find at the moment, everybody's convinced that it will break seven um, in short order. Our view is that that's not so easy. Um, in fact, it, they've got quite a lot of instrument to, to prevent it from doing so. It's much easier for us to use the Taiwan dollar and the Korean one as a hedge uh, for a weaker run than just speculating on on when that the seven breaks. But that sounds like an environment where. If the Chinese are stimulating growth and succeed in doing so, that's pretty supportive for global growth numbers and potentially for equity markets. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, dep- it depends on the, the make of their growth. If they do, if they did devalue their currency to stimulate their own exports, um, in a way, it, it helps their domestic GDP. But if you know, the way GDP is measured, you know, if everybody else has a bigger trade deficit, then that is lower GDP for everybody else. So it's, a, it's more of a redistribution. 
Um, I think if they held the line um, and decide that they're willing to lose competitiveness in some sectors uh, to the benefit of others, I think longer term it's better, clearly. Um, the, you know, stronger consumption domestically for China is better for the rest of the world than them trying to compete on price. Um, that's a better choice, uh, but does it mean they can, you know, it's, it, the conversion or the, or the speed of change for their economy to be growing more from a domestic standpoint rather than a foreign? foreign exports, um, the, the speed of that change will be fast enough for the leadership to maintain the kind of growth rate they want. But it's very ambitious for China to grow at 6.5%. I mean, let's just not forget that you know, China growing at 6.5% is making a new Greece every six weeks or something like this. I mean, this is not a small bit uh, of addition to, the, to world demand. And last question on uh, EM foreign exchange. I heard a very strong statement from Jim Barrino last week that he much preferred investing in dollar emerging markets debt over local currency emerging markets debt. I think that's also reflected in the broader global portfolios that you run here in London. Yes, indeed. Yes, and, and I think Jim's Jim's preference was always he looked at he looked at yields in domestic yields and dollar yields, and he said, "Well, you're not getting paid enough for the current currency risk, um, if you will." So it's Hence the hence the preference for the the hard currency uh, debt, which, as we noted earlier, has cheapened dramatically against uh, against the equivalent uh, ratings in in U.S. dollars. So um, in in U.S. high yield. So that's clearly been his preference of his. And he was he was right. I mean, local currencies have been very weak, um, and and also the policy response for the, you know, the currency weakness has been more of a. I think, as, as Alice Leader of Astrages notes, it's more of a reactive response than, than a proactive, trying to get ahead of it. It's really trying to to, uh, to stop the hemorrhage, but not really with a very strong policy statement. Mm. Um, and therefore, apart from South Africa, which is really making a big turn in terms of their macro policy setup, um, everybody else is more or less you know, dragging along behind the market. So we're not quite at the point where we're ready to buy the local currency yet, as tempting as it sounds. Okay, well, let me try to sum up uh, the points Philippe's are making. Uh, so overall, we're short duration. Uh, we're still concerned about the uh, relatively aggressive tightening uh, strategy of the Fed. Uh, we've talked about the, the supply-demand balance for the Treasury market, a lot of new issuance and fewer buyers than there have been. Uh, we've also talked about the impact of cash rate differentials on foreign appetite for U.S. assets. Um, although uh, peripheral European yields, particularly Italy, have been going up, uh, we don't yet have any appetite to uh, take advantage of that. Uh, we also are very cautious on emerging markets currencies, although uh, in preference to high yield and now moving some assets into uh, dollar-denominated emerging markets debt. So that's a, a quick summary and all we have time for this week. So I'd like to thank Philippe once again for talking to us and thank you all for listening. This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.